This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is your guest, Shannon Holbert, uh, coming to you from Texas. Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's actually been way past overdue. We just hit our 100 plus episodes, and I can't believe that you haven't been on it yet. Anyway, excited to have you out here. So for those that don't know Shannon, she is currently the CEO of Opus Interactive, as well as Redbridge Incorporation, which is an intertribal energy and tech tour. Before we get started, Shannon, could you share at a very high level what makes Shannon and what do you do? I'm the CEO at Opus Interactive and then also the founder of Redbridge Foundation. I also do sit on the advisory board for Native Renewal, which is a Native American 501c3 that was established in 2019. And our goal is to um, bring power to the Navajo Diné Reservation, serving the first 15,000 homes. There are, I believe, over 200,000 homes that don't have electrification. That was founded by Suzanne Singer, who I met. She formerly was with Lawrence Livermore National Labs and is the CEO of that organization and also sits on the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board for the Department of Energy. So that's a really great organization that is really doing great things to bring technology as well as energy and just connectivity in general to Native American and also using that as a platform to launch into like other areas that also are in need of electrification. For those that don't know, you're actually one of the top most prominent leaders in the cloud computing sector as well. Oh, well, thank you. And yes. What a segue. What a segue. Yeah. So let's peel on in a bit. How did you get started? I mean, you're talking cloud, you're talking energy, you're talking data centers. So the younger Shannon, what did she want to be when she grew up? What was that dream? So I actually, I'm Native American. I'm a member of the Yurok tribe of Northern California. I'm also South River Pima and San Carlos Apache from Arizona. So I grew up on the Yurok Indian Reservation in a very, very, very rural area in Northern California. In a village, I would say there are probably maybe less than 20 families that live in an area. We were about 20 miles from the nearest store and had no electricity, no connectivity, no phone service of any kind. And so I actually had solar through, I believe it was the Rural Electrification Act. Some funding there was given to Native American tribes. So my grandmother's home was actually provided solar when I was about eight years old. Prior to that, we would actually have like a, if anybody wanted to watch television, it was like plug in the car battery and use or an antenna or walk to the one place in the village that had a satellite. And that was when satellites were super, super huge and they were running off of a generator. And so for me, very early was no connectivity and no electricity. So that has been probably the driving force to the passion that I have that kind of really fuel my desire to really do a lot of advocacy for digital inclusion, STEM, women in tech, and then also sustainable everything. So that was kind of my start. One of the things that has always heartened me about this experience, starting the podcast and all that is 
trying to get people from all different cultures, all different lived experiences to share their stories in the hopes that it resonates with someone out there that might not think that this is the right industry for them because we come from all walks of life. There is no one size fits all approach. I do think you might be the first representative of the Native American community that we've had on the show, not because we haven't sought them out, is because you're just underrepresented, I think, all over the place in, in many industries, uh, of course, but in ours in particular. I have to ask, you grew up without access to any of this infrastructure. When did you first realize, other than the idea that you could see the TV set if you hooked it up to the car battery, when did you first get experience with kind of the modern world, modern society? Yep. So when I was about 10 years old, my family went to Southern Oregon and we were there during the summertime. And I recall like we were staying there and it was really hard to sleep at night because we were right in this little tiny town, which was another Native American reservation called Tulloquin, Oregon. And there was a train that was coming through at night and they had street lights. And it was just the train was coming through so you could hear it. And the street lights, that was so foreign to me. And that was, yeah, really super crazy. It's like so, speaking to someone that grew up in like the 1800s, the 1700s. It's amazing. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, there's no movie out there that actually can even I know. <laughs> yeah. illustrate. Yeah, it was flashlights and candles and kerosene lanterns. So, How did you get to Southern Oregon? Well, my mom and my dad married. He was from Southern Oregon. So that's how I ended up there. And that was kind of my very first exposure to, wow, this is how a lot of people live every day. Like, obviously, we would go to the store, we would go to town, and there would be everything big and all of that going on. And I loved the idea of the fast pace, everything. And, and so I've been very fortunate because it does take a village. And I have been a member of many villages throughout my life and my career. And there's always been somebody that has been there to serve as a mentor, somebody who has really been an ally that has really made sure that I had the opportunity to be one of the only Native American CEOs. So, yeah. That so was tell before us, you came on the podcast. Now we're going to have, there's going to be an influx after we get your story out to the world, I imagine. <laughs> and I can't wait to see it. That'd be wonderful. So tell us at the age of eight, you're still not really exposed to the craziness of the world. What was the education scene with the 20 families around till you got really exposed to the Western education? So what was interesting is while my school, so I went to a school called Jack Norton Elementary. It was the last school in California to be running off of a generator. I believe it was like 2019 or 2018 that they finally switched and were able to be part of the grid. But what was unique about that is we obviously fell into a specific demographic and the teachers in the school, great mentors, but also great advocates for digital inclusion from back in the day. And they had done a great job of seeking out and receiving grants. So we were like one of the schools that had like the Apple IIe. So learning and running the dot matrix printer to create various things back in the day, like that was me off a generator. So again, back in the day, sounds like you're describing the 1800s. It wasn't the 1800s, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> right? Yes. And I have to say that, like I say back in the day, but there are still many, many households, many communities that are still those. And, and, and it is, it becomes super important because 
Everything we do is connected. It's online. All of our businesses are there. Our communications are there. Learning is there. Everything is there. And so to not have access to connectivity at this point is definitely a problem that seeks solving. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have been like. And for those that actually still don't have it, I mean, that's kind of like the idea that we fantasize in the third world country. So there is potentially areas that have zero connectivity, that have zero power. And that's kind of like what we're trying to address and get those children exposed. I can't even imagine anything like that in America, but it has happened. And there are probably still some areas, like you said. So at the age of 10, you moved to South Oregon. And it sounds like that you fairly early on that there was this digital exposure that you got, even with a limited set of resources, and that potentially made you who you are today. But when did you decide that cloud and data centers was going to be a focus of interest? So funny, 2011. So around Southern Oregon, I went to Haskell Lincoln Junior College in Lord, Kansas. So that was like my first experience outside of Oregon. So prior to that, I'd only been in California and Oregon and the world got a little bit bigger. Um, North Kansas? Yeah. Just, yeah. Imagine <laughs> that. Imagine that you went to North Kansas to like see, oh, this is a big city. This is Lord, a so baby. Bustling, bustling <laughs> metropolis. So that I went to school there. I worked, gosh, I worked at a sign company. The sign company was a sister company to a creative agency. And the creative agency, I really fell into, I liked creativity. But I decided to go back to school for marketing and graphic design. I went to finish graphic design, worked for a company called Portland Energy Conservation. And they were purchased, I believe, like maybe five or six years ago by Clear Result. They are a utility energy efficiency program management contractor. So as the kid that had come from this area where sustainability is a way of life, this is my first exposure to, hey, everybody, like sustainability is possible and here are all the ways you can do it. And here's why it's important. So I was there for a really long time working on Energy Star programs throughout the nation. And it was everything from residential and products to commercial. And what's interesting is the commercial buildings programs that I worked on, we had a lot of engineers on staff and they were working with new technologies to figure out retro commissioning strategies. So at the time, the United States was looking at how do we go about making commercial buildings like five or 10 percent more efficient by X date. And so the engineers were working on here are the easiest ways you can get the most savings, the biggest bang for your buck. And it was things like heating and cooling, solving for simultaneous heating and cooling at the time, looking at building design, what were some of those things that were happening? What was lead certification? How did you align lead with ASHRAE? and Energy Star in terms of building commissioning and retro commissioning, how they had termed it. So that was another area where it was like, oh, big buildings, got to make them good. Homes, it can be possible to be sustainable. Those were all like really great things. I, I branched off and, and created a marketing company in 2011 and was approached by the company that I had worked, the slide company, their creative agency had branched off into three separate organizations. So it became Portland's Vital Slime, Opus Creative, and Opus Interactive. And so Opus Interactive's then CEO had reached out to my marketing company to see if I would come and do strategy and branding for the organization. 
So that was me kind of coming back in full circle to that company, but then also with Eric and Brady, who are my co-owners at Opus Interactive. So what was really cool about that whole thing and becoming part of data centers and cloud in that early part was going to the very early conferences and looking around and just being like, oh my gosh, I'm literally sometimes the only woman here. And initially it was a lot of, hey, here's your marketing person. And then the marketing person became the owner and my team would be like, actually, she's our CEO. And at first it was, I was sitting on panels for, hey, here's the women in tech panel. And we were only talking to other women. (laughs) to, hey, here's somebody who actually, we want to hear their insight on what's happening in the industry. And that was all just the advocacy that I was talking about, where it is literally, it's been one person after another, just having conversations and saying, hey, you should listen to what Shannon has to say about this or that. And what had been really kind of great in seeing this evolution, because coming from an energy efficiency company, a Native American who, you know, you're growing up with sustainability at the core of who you are to coming into the data center industry. Some of those early conferences, it was like, oh my gosh, where are the utility companies? Like we're burning through energy here and there's so much opportunity for efficiency. And as kind of time has progressed, a little bit has happened, a little bit has happened. COVID came along, mass migration into the cloud. With that mass migration increases demand and also puts strain on the grid and increases the power cost. And then that has driven this revolution for innovative energy products, efficiency solution, building design, everything that has been such so core to who I am is, is happening in real time. And it's just so super exciting to me because Some of those same concepts that were in the books from the engineers that I was working with back at PECI are now being applied and they're being applied with a lot faster adoption because before it was you handed over a manual to the BOM and your hope was that a year later they'd been going with the recommended controls. Now we've got digital everything and there's software that's managing that and making sure that we have those accountabilities in place and that you're actually doing things that are simultaneous learning as well as improvements that are happening. And yeah, it's super cool. I'm just thinking of that little girl who saw a streetlight for the first time when she was 10 years old and a train going through now, not that long later, talking about ASHRAE standards and sustainability in the data center and how digital disruption has escalated our need for energy efficiency. And it's wondrous to see how that happened. And I wonder, like, when you started, when you got to Kansas and you saw the big city of Lawrenceville, the urban Mecca that Kansas is known for. And you didn't have a lot of experience with certainly technology and some of the kind of modern fixings of the world. What was that transition like? How do you go from not really experiencing that stuff in any real way to just being thrown into the deep end of the pool and essentially competing with people who grew up their entire lives with every possible gadget, gizmo, button, and blinking light they could ever possibly want? Well, ADHD and hyperfocus are superpowers. (laughs) <laughs> Love it. Yeah. When do you think was that transition? I mean, you go to college, you still got marketing as your focus. Of course, it makes sense that you were working with the energy conservation organization. 
When did you see that transition happening or were the driving factors being getting involved in the physical layer or the computing layer of the infrastructure? How, how did that come about? Besides you just being on several panels and talking about women in tech and minorities and others, there's still that transition point. Where did that happen and how did that come about? Right. So Opus Interactive is a cloud and co-location provider. And so they, as an organization, existed in the beginning as an IT department. Gotcha. Uh, 1996. And so the company itself has been around for nearly 30 years at this point. And so at the company, Opus started as an IT department, branched off, started our own thing. We had at one point been an ISP. Then we became a co-location provider, then we became a cloud provider that was hybrid cloud, and now it's hybrid cloud co-location. And where that really has been transitional is just in who the company is at its core. And it really just comes down to our mission statement is we connect people with technology. And it doesn't ever have this type of technology because what is happening in technology is changing so fast every day that for us, our best thing that we can do is look into the needs of our customers and where are they having challenges, having conversations with other customers, other people, other leaders in the industry to see kind of like where is the puck going to go next and making sure that we're able to provide those solutions to make sure that our customers are always cutting edge. So, yeah. Wonderful. So it's not bad that she actually knows hockey as well, Phil. So as the CEO, <laughs> as the CEO, I think, I, I think Native Americans are underrepresented in hockey also. So I think we need to. It's a lot of work we have to do. There you go. I, I believe lacrosse. That there's they got lacrosse. Yeah. So you became the CEO of Opus Interactive, and knowing what I know of you and the conversations we have had over the past few years. It's really more of an entrepreneurship than anything else, right? So walk us through that journey. I mean, that's a big, big step from where you were to where you're at today. How did that come about? Entrepreneurship. So, gosh, in like maybe 2019, 2020, we went and got certified through WBENC. So basically, woman-owned certification. And, and one of the pieces that comes along with that is they come on site and make sure that you actually know what you're doing and that you are truly, truly leading the company. And there's a whole long interview. And one of the questions was, what is it that, like, why do you think that you have the experience to know how to run the company? And at the moment, first of all, are men being asked these questions? But I digress. Outside of that, it was like, oh, like only everything I've ever done, right? It's the fact that I worked outside before college. It works at McDonald's and you don't know production at scale unless you worked at McDonald's, right? Because like they really got it like diet. I spent about five years as a door maker in a mill. So that was like an all male team of people. And basically we were building doors every single day for Jeldwin. And it was on this line of production and you're like, Brandy styles and you're throwing out this cardboard stuff, putting in the lock blocks. I was the top of the team. And so my row would build like a thousand doors a night, sometimes 1200, which was a huge amount. And so it was kind of like being a humanoid. And the original AI. That's right. That's me. <laughs> it's no longer serious, uh, Shannon. <laughs> yeah. 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 
And so there was that. I was a wildland firefighter for a second. So those are two things where like really understanding optimization, lean manufacturing, those types of things. Wildland firefighting, that's like at its best, at its worst. How do you operate under extreme pressure? And then I went on and it was marketing and just doing and really at every step of the journey, it has been adding some other learning experience that I didn't have before. And I would say that I've really been fortunate to have good and learning experience bosses, right? So all of those things have really just been learning experiences along the way that have really made it so that collectively I am able to say with confidence that it takes a lifeline. Like you guys, right? We are at a point in this industry where nobody or very, very few of us have actually come here natively into the cloud and data center industry. Most of us have kind of like weaved our way and just fell into the spot and like, holy God, there's like a ton of stuff going on here. And I like it and I want to be part of this. And we are all like these digital like founding fathers and mothers of what we're creating and we're all building the information superhighway right now. And that is super exciting. And all of these diverse backgrounds that are coming together that make this possible. And it also makes our industry really prone to change and acceptance of change. And also I believe, and having worked in several industries, like we really accept the diversity part because it's all those backgrounds. Somebody has a different perspective and they have a different way of problem solving than you do. And when you put those brains together, that's just beautiful. I think the the concept of number one, learning from your experiences, no matter what they are, is just incredibly valuable. And also the acknowledgement that as kind of pioneers in the industry, we are learning how it works while we're also kind of crafting our solutions. So we kind of have to be adaptable. Otherwise, we wouldn't survive. But I will say three things. One is there's only one native that's on our podcast, and it's you. It's not either of us. So we're certainly not natives to our industry. There's only there's only one, and you win that battle. But I, I did not have on my what was going to come up in this podcast that you were a firefighter. I mean, I have a whole list of things that I thought would come up. And that wasn't on my list. That is incredible. How did that happen? I have to stop there and see. How did you go from one to the other? And where did that come up? Yeah. Well, I was a single mom and... A single mom firefighter. Padmik and me and... How many boxes do you need to check? <laughs> yeah. So that was a crazy experience. And it was only one summer, but definitely it was Oregon Department of Forestry. And the majority of the days are just spent really like my role in our engine was the navigator. So that was back before we had GPS. So you had to understand like township range and all of those things. And so being able to navigate our machine out into the wilderness to where and also um, make the call for where we're dropping retardant, that sort of thing. So yeah, crazy, crazy experience. That's, that's incredible. How long is that training? If you were there just for the summer, I'm just curious. I mean, that's on, 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 exactly. I mean, oh my God. I mean, oh, there's a... She just signed up, fire on Elm Street. Tell us how to get there. <laughs> I just well, moved here. Wait, say. Exactly. Yeah. So very diverse background. So tell us about your family. How many siblings and are any of them in the space in any capacity? Yep. I have two brothers and two sisters. And no, so both of my sisters work in health and wellness for Native American tribes. 
My younger brother passed away a couple of years ago, and my older brother, he resides on the Europe Reservation still, and he does a lot in construction and some forestry planting stuff, that sort of thing. How about your kids? Oh, yes. Them. Yay. Uh, I forgot about them. Well, they're like a part of me. Right. I get it. So, yeah, they actually, well, both of them are artists. So digital art has been their thing since day one. So they were obviously influenced by you and the data center sector. Are they looking at or in any capacity involved in the data infrastructure space? Yes. So one of the kids actually does social media, adopted that pretty quickly. The other is pursuing digital animation, but also focused on marine biology. So in school. Wonderful. Uh, Mom's done well. (laughs) No, no, no no doubt. Mission so far accomplished. Have they had exposure to the native culture uh, as well? Like, do they have that corollary? Yes. Because I have Redbridge Foundation and we had done the energy tech tour, they've been both very, very up close and personal with the passion for making sure that underserved communities have access and and are aware of opportunities for STEM careers. And in addition to that, I would say they just have been born and raised in that. I think there's a lot that I just values and culture that probably are just things that are kind of ingrained that they've adopted. Family among Native communities is very, very huge. Community is really, really big. So really making sure that you're supporting the youth and the elders is always like a huge priority within tribal communities. And so they know and adopt that same kind of ethos as human beings. So. Yeah. Well, so and for those growing out, they've obviously been in data centers. And I would say early on in our first data center was like Tata in downtown Portland. And at the time, there was only enough space for us to have office space for like a couple of engineers. And so the owners were in this one area that was a kind of big storage room. And so my daughter at a very, very young age was there every day. It was cold, so there were space heaters, and she would come right out of school, just show up. And so both of my kids have been around and very familiar with racks and bits and bites and all of that. So, yeah. So, Phil, you wanted a surprise. There is another one for you, which you probably would never know about Shannon, is that she's actually a musician as well. I mean, the hits just keep on coming. This is the original Renaissance woman. I think we've put them all to shame. Single mom, firefighter, Native American musician. Data yeah. center and the top data center pioneers. Well, smoke will start coming out of the LinkedIn profile if we start adding all of these. Add all these things. What instrument do you play? I do digital electronic music. So amazing. Yeah, and we'll make sure to add that link over here. So Shannon, okay. for all the experiences you that you've had in your life thus far, and for everything that you do, how do you keep up with the constant evolving technology sector? ADHD. Yes, I mean they say don't start something unless you're super passionate about it. I'm just really passionate about innovation. So nothing else in the history of mankind is happening as quickly as what we're building right now in data centers and cloud. The introduction of AI is here and that's huge. And so for me, in conversation with people that are doing it every day, it's for folks with ADHD and it's conversations with customers and paying close attention to kind of what's happening in the world, conversations with kids, because like they're the digital natives, seriously. They've grown up in it. And for them, 
the adoption of technology, like they've already got it. And it's such an exciting time for all things connectivity and all things sustainable, right? That those are all forefront on everybody's minds right now. And it's just so exciting that how can you not just be like asking everybody and having all of those conversations all the time? Like it's crazy. And I'm super excited to be in the industry and forever honored just because there are so many smart people that I can be in contact with every day that just really are driving things forward. And I love that. What is it something that we don't know about you that you would want to tell people? There's something for, else? For listeners. Um, yeah. I know um, if at least one more thing. <laughs> let's see let's see let's see if it's uh but we'll let you tell thing. that right right so is it this Nabil? i have well starbucks. yeah that too <laughs> okay i have starbucks from like a million locations um a starbucks mug collector yes mm-hmm. from southern oregon to lawrenceville kansas down to houston Texas. absolutely that's yeah, right. and she she is the biggest fan of Elon Musk that I've ever actually met. So, oh, oh, and also I am a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. Yeah, that's another one, Phil. Beat that. Uh, my, what? My kids are big into Taekwondo. I have a yellow belt and a blue belt. I was never going to mess with you. Now I'm certain not to mess with you. So it's. I hope everybody out there knows this is Shannon is not one to be trifled with. But it's all for self-defense. I just think we say sustainability as a word. And in many industries, it's a checkbox with ours. We've talked about on the podcast how it has more meaning because there's actually also a shared economic benefit besides being good stewards of the environment and the amount of power that we use. With you, sustainability just seems, you can't even use that word. It's so ingrained in who you are. You didn't even need to come up with a word for it because as I imagine as a Native American growing up, like the earth is something to be cherished. How do you dovetail those two things with an industry that just takes a lot of resources to do what we do? And in some cases, you don't have the benefit of having a purpose-built site that can be super sustainable and you don't want to stifle innovation. How do you hold those two thoughts and work through that? I would say, well, it was interesting in the beginning because everything core to who I am, it's kind of like going from peace, the biggest energy star called action was save energy, save money. And then save the environment. And now you're seeing data centers have that same kind of motivation. It, it was interesting in the beginning because it was like, I, I realized early on in those conferences, oh my gosh, like we're burning through a ton of energy. And I'm so I'm on these panels and I'm like, hey, everybody, like, it's so great for sustainability and save energy, save money. And at the end of the day, it is lead by example, right? So as an organization, we really made it part of our value system is to stay sustainable, sustainable IT. So for us, that means Energy Star equipment. It means vision cage design. It means understanding who our partners are, making sure the buildings that we are building out inside of our net zero, building right-size solutions, all those things. And so we could do what we can as an organization. I can do what I can as one human being. And partnering with other organizations that are doing that, really making sure that we're getting the message out. So being on panels, talking with other people that are also passionate about sustainable IT and all things sustainable. That's really how it was to coexist in where we were. And then a couple of years ago, the price of energy went crazy and was super unpredictable. The demand for reliable energy had become top of mind. So 
efficiency at this point for most data center providers at this point, if they're in conversations with very large cloud providers, that sustainability is not in their roadmap already, and they're not already making progress, then they're not really going to get to be part of that procurement process because everybody at this point has an initiative to make sure that they're being as efficient as possible, to make sure that they've got a reliable power source, that they're working with companies that are looking for where is it going and how do we make sure that we can continue to not only provide sustainable, efficient options, but that we're really looking out for the planet. We're really looking out for everything. What's interesting about this big migration that happened after COVID is it now becomes that IT used to be that group of people that were map and do drinkers, and there's a couple of them, crazy engineers. And now nothing happens at the business level unless IT is involved. And so it becomes very important to make sure that we have sustainable IT. Because for companies that have corporate social responsibility initiative, this becomes one of the only ways that they're now able to show that they're doing their best or there's no longer brick and mortar. And so it becomes what does your cloud solution look like and how is that also sustainable and how is that impacting and what good are you doing for people and the planet? So. Yeah, I think part of the problem with those things, and they're all fantastic thoughts, is trying to balance the corporate desire to continue to scale with a corporate responsibility to build a sustainable environment. And I have to imagine that while the IT folks are involved in every conversation, it's always like, get this working right away. The business needs this. And it's always an afterthought, like, okay, later you can worry about the sustainability. And how do we make those priorities coexist? Do you get any pushback? from this, my last question, I swear, you get any pushback from the native communities that you work with, given the fact that you're involved in such a power and resource intense industry? I don't actually. So obviously I'm on the advisory board for native renewables. They are not only trying to grant electrification, but they're also doing a lot with also providing like Starlink at those same areas and looking at what are the microgrid and that can also allow connectivity to also be a constant for those communities as well. In addition to that, there are a lot of like my tribe, the, the Yurok tribe, they actually were looking for how do we get our people connected? So out of her was my grandma, 93 years old. She had a stroke maybe five years ago and I'm in California at the hospital with her and talking to the doctor and he's like, oh, well, if she starts to experience X, then just have her call in. And I'm like, well, you don't know where my grandma lives. <laughs> yeah. She's way, way out. And it's going to- Do you accept Morse code, doctor? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it was like those types of things. But what's been really interesting is COVID happened and the SEC took a big look at what does the connectivity look like across America? And what was interesting is for every school in America, they are tasked with providing the same educational opportunity for all of the students, right? And so when COVID happened, the ability to have online learning was very apparent that it was not equal across the board. And so that made a big push, not just with Native American communities, but also with every community where it was like, okay, we actually need to take a look at 
what does it mean to be connected? Like if you say that you have and are providing cell service to this area, what is that guideline? What does it look like? What does it look like as a satellite provider? Are you able to determine that you can be a provider? Because before my grandma got a broadband, I was looking at Starlink. I was like one of the very, very early, like, please kick me up. I'm starting to understand this Elon Musk uh, fangirl status. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking so many things. It's so great. Yeah. So, but it was like, hey, like, what does that look like? I was exploring and Redbridge also did some work with tribal communities. And so I was at Native American conferences where the SDC was showing up and talking about there's 3.5, 2.5, 3.5 broadband was available for the tribes to claim. And so that was pre-COVID. And so it was like, hey, everybody, you probably want to get involved in that because at this point, connectivity becomes very important in terms of making sure that tribal communities have access to telehealth services, um, have access to online education, work from home, have videos, when all of those things, streaming is a thing. And being able to just be part of the conversation. So many things happen in terms of like policy is driven by a lot of times people are just looking at like what's happening in my feed and that becomes the ethos to what's happening in the world. And so if you're not connected, then you're not part of that conversation. But if you are connected and you are part of that conversation, that becomes really cool because then you see this growth of ideas and it becomes so much more important, right? Ideas just grow out of that. Like some person says something and it sparks an idea for somebody that wouldn't have thought that had it not really been this little spark over here. So. I could see a bring cat videos to native communities as an, a campaign in and of itself. Yes. Propose that to the FCC. <laughs> <laughs> FCC can put that in their pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't say that. But on a positive note, the world is going to be fully connected at some point in time. There will be this internet bubble, which is, of course, going to impact the rural communities. And of course, there's going to be electricity, energy, and connectivity. So, Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been absolutely phenomenal. I think we could do like multiple series of this discussion. There's yet to be plenty of stuff that we actually didn't capture, and that's yet to be explored. But before we let you go, Knowing what you know today and through your journey, the trials and tribulations and everything that you've accomplished in your life, what would you tell the young Shannon? That one thing, that one message. It would be, keep going, it's going to be okay. I wouldn't change anything. Stick on fight and fire, all of that, it all plays into where you end up, so. Keep going, it will be okay. Well, with that, thank you very much for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurists. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing, as well as your continued support.